This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 395, September the 30th, 1997. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdoony, and I have the privilege of visiting with an old friend. Ian Hodge is here from Australia, and... Ian has been an active worker in terms of Christian Reconstruction in Australia, has accomplished a great deal there, and this is our opportunity to bring you up to date on things in Australia. Now, to me, Australia is one of the most important countries in the world because of its potential. A hundred years from now, it can be a major force on the world scene, given its potential, and if it has the right kind of Christian direction. More than one person feels that way, people who are uh, students of the economic scene and of the natural resources of Australia. Ian, it's good to have you here with us again. I know that, like us, Australia has its problems. But uh, it also has uh, its potentials, more than most countries. Do you want to give us a brief introduction to the world of Australia? Thank you, Rush, and thank you for the words of welcome. Some comedian said once that the problem with Australia is that it's full of Australians. Yes. <coughs> so I'm not sure that, uh, that that's the, the, pro- the right answer. I think on the economic front, Australia is pretty well known for its, uh, its resources. It has huge uh, mineral reserves of uh, various kinds, and it is uh, rich in uh, farming land. In terms of uh, land to people ratio, we're underpopulated with about 18 million people there. So we have enormous potential for growth. Economically at the moment, Australia is, is like many countries around the world, hurting. We have uh, had enormous, we had during the 80s and the 70s and preceding that enormous inflation, uh, reaching rates of anywhere up to 28 to 30 percent. Oh my, that high. That high. And after the stock market crash in 87, uh, they pushed it up to about the 28% level. And then in 1990, they cut it drastically down to about 1% to 2%. And that was, as the Prime Minister at the time said, Paul Keating said, this is the recession we have to have. And it was a severe recession. The money supply was turned back on for a while in about 1994, about three years ago, about the time I was here last. And then they've uh, moved it up and down. So the recession there is still severe and is causing a lot of economic hardship uh, for many people. And we put that into its global context. Uh, Australia, I think, to some extent has had its wealth at the expense of uh, its Asian neighbours. We've had high tariff protection. We've had uh, high unionism that has helped protect local industries that are in terms of uh, outside foreign competition inefficient and uh, in fact I was uh, driving around today in Andrew's vehicle a little envious of the fact that he can buy a 
superior vehicle to what I would buy at less than, than half the, the dollar cost. Now, I appreciate there's an exchange rate in there as well. They are the kind of differences. Well, in the current market environment, we're seeing a globalisation of the market. So uh, Australian consumers, are like consumers everywhere, want cheaper goods. So our manufacturing uh, industries are suffering and hurting. Our uh, farming is uh, somewhat uh, devastated by now a fairly lengthy drought. Uh, it's been around for about seven years. So huge portions of the, nature of the country have been declared drought and remain that way at the moment. And then we've had the other difficulties associated, for example, with subsidised wheat from America hitting the market and taking away our traditional markets. So we're in a country that's uh, going through, I think, enormous transition. Well, I think it is interesting that uh, Australia, which is roughly the size of the continental United States, has a population of only 18 million. Now, you have to go back to the early years of the last century in the United States to find a comparable uh, correlation because, uh, let's say, in the first quarter of the last century, our population was uh, somewhat similar to Australia's, and we didn't have the whole continent then. We did not have the West Coast nor the Oregon Territory. And Australia has all of that in its size today and with a population that is only 18 million. So its future is a tremendous one if its economics and its religious faith are on keel. Now, tell us a little bit about the church scene there so that we can assess the picture from that point of view. Well, the church scene is um, one again in transition. We have seen the traditional denominations in the country which have been Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian and the old school Methodist and Baptist uh, denominations have declined somewhat in the marketplace or at least in the Protestant side of that. The other side of that has been a growth in the Pentecostal and Charismatic uh, movement within the country. However, the number of people in the census that say they are believing God or, or attending churches remains roughly the same. And so on any given Sunday, uh, about 20% of the population claim to be in church. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it would be that high. I don't think we have enough buildings to house 20% of the population on any given Sunday. So I would expect that our active church going community is uh, lower than that. In terms of evangelicalism, the numbers would be even smaller again because we've had uh, liberalism in most of the denominations. Uh, the, um, the only well-known stand against liberalism theologically has been the Anglican Church and more specifically the Diocese of Sydney which has produced some... Uh, Bishop Leonard was very powerful there in uh, standing up to uh, modernist forces. Is his successor equally strong? Uh, yes, I think the Anglican Church there has still maintained that, that stand pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, but the great complaint about the church generally in Australia, of course, is that it's irrelevant. And I think, generally speaking, that that does put the, the Christian church in Australia in its right position. We have not had the answers to the great issues of the day, either today or in the past, and so people view the church as something that's necessary for our baptisms and funerals and, uh, you know, confirmation or, or something like that, and weddings. Is this because they, the church has retreated and allowed government to take over some of the functions that the church used to perform? I think, I think that's part of it, Douglas. The, um, our, our church history would be more aligned, I think, with what's come out of England, and I think we can trace a decline in uh, conservative theology in the Protestant churches in England following the Reformation. Um, we've been fortunate enough in Australia to have Brian Abshire there with us in the past week. And I said to Brian, I said, I think it is illustrative of the situation that if we walk into a Christian bookstore and ask for good Christian books, most of them are coming out of United States of America. Now, that's a generalisation, but, but I think the generalisation stands. We don't see good conservative theological books in a mass uh, numbers coming out of places like England or Australia. So I think our churches there have helped um, their own demise by heading towards a, a working relationship with the state that have helped um, uh, put Australia into a more socialistic framework. For example, most of our denominations, their support agencies would be financed by the government. They've paid a price for that because now they can't, for example, the old people's homes, they are no longer able to keep the homes confined to only people within their own denomination. They have to take uh, whoever the government says they, they may take. What about Christian schools and the state of Christian education there, Ian? Well, the Christian school market is, is fairly small. I'm a little uh, out of touch with the figures in terms I haven't been active in the in the um, traditional school market for a couple of years, uh, Andrew, but um, we only had uh, in total about 40,000 students in Christian schools about two years ago. Now, I would think in a population of 18 million, that's a pretty small number. The homeschooling market, again, it's a growing portion of the Christian school movement. Uh, nobody's certain exactly how large it is but I was uh, involved enough to say that uh, a fairly accurate account would only put somewhere between five to seven thousand uh, students in the um, in the homeschooling market and then there would be a Catholic portion in addition to that that may maybe another four or five thousand students and you were mentioning earlier today were you not that most of the or all perhaps of the Christian schools are state-subsidized, or virtually all of them, is that right? Or? Um, most of them are to the extent that the government will finance uh, land and, and uh, uh, or at least capital uh, equipment, and then there are funding allowances they can get you know, on a per capita basis as well. So uh, by and large, the churches there and do believe that they have a right to, um, to have the government sub, you know, pay for, for the education. After all, we do pay for it in our taxes. Hmm. Is there any counter trend to that, uh, like starting truly independent Christian schools? or There have been some people that have uh, tried to do it, and in fact, um, 
there's even been a movement to start a Christian university there that wouldn't take government funding and encourage the students to stay away from from receiving government funding for the tuition. Uh, by and large, they've been unsuccessful because the parents really are not prepared to pay the true cost of uh, tuition. New Zealand, if I can throw a mm-hmm. comment in there, uh, went a step further when a couple of years ago the government in New Zealand introduced what they call integration. And the New Zealand government effectively said, we will finance the operational cost of your school. Mm-hmm. You are not allowed, therefore, to charge a tuition fees for to cover teacher salaries and you know pens and paper and whatever else the school might buy, that might purchase. They are able to charge for capital cost, your buildings and land. And uh, while integration is optional, it has helped take some some schools that wouldn't agree with that thing out of the marketplace. I know, for example, in New Zealand, one um, or in Christchurch in New Zealand, one school there didn't want to integrate, but the competitors around the corner integrated. Integration. No, no, integration in terms of what the government called oh, I see. coming into part mm-hmm. of the uh, the government system, mm-hmm. where the government financed the operational costs. Mm-hmm. So this school uh, held out against integration. The competitors down the road went for it, and the mm-hmm. fees dropped in the competing competing school from somewhere around the two and a half grand mark down to eight or nine hundred dollars. So the parents, of course, took the choice and went down the road and paid eight or nine hundred dollars instead of two and a half thousand dollars. So we're, face, we're facing a much broader issue in the sense that um, in Australia the parents are not prepared yet to finance out of their own pocket. The and it's a vicious cycle because they're probably overtaxed anyway, right? That's correct. Okay. Speaking of money, what is the um, spirit of, of Christian business or Christian businessmen in Australia? I mean, you yourself are a businessman. What is, the, is there a real entrepreneurial free market spirit among them? Or just talk about that for a few minutes. Uh, there's very little organisational in, uh, level amongst Christians. You know, there are a few odd organisations. I'm involved with Christian Businessmen of Australia, and um, but they don't really bring the Christian community, business community together in terms of business. Mm. They are really bringing the business community together as a form of outreach and provide a vehicle to, for, for outreach. Uh, apart from that, there would be uh, odd groups, uh, meetings, some of the charismatic uh, and Pentecostal type churches, which have probably got two or 3,000 members, may be doing, uh, and some of them would be doing things to, to encourage a little more entrepreneurship, Christian businesses. Whether that's translating, of course, into specific Christian business practices is, uh, is another question. As uh, we talk today, one of the areas of real potential in in reconstruction is to develop um, materials for you know Christian business, Christian management, etc. How much does the government involve themselves in dictating curriculum and subject matter in the schools that the government supports? That varies a little state by state. Um, in Queensland, which is my state, the government effectively leaves private schools alone. There's no re- Requirement in terms of curriculum. In New South Wales, there have been more pressures there to conform uh, to curriculum requirements. Both states have a registered school policy, so all schools must be must be registered. But uh, and it, so it depends a little on the bureaucratic 
mentality in the different areas just how much the regulations are being enforced. For example, the schools in New South Wales right at the moment are facing um, <coughs> the issue of corporal punishment where that's been prohibited by state legislation and that includes the, the, the Christian schools uh, that have uh, accepted uh, you know, registration status. So in order to maintain the registration, they will have to conform to the no corporal punishment requirement. I noticed when I was in England, there, when I was in England last, there's not only the socialistic economy, but also a socialistic mindset, even among Christians, that somehow we can't survive without government funding or government benefits. Is that basically true also in Australia? Yes. We, I think basically we we, we can trace the connection between England and Australia to say that the Christians have increasingly turned to this to the political state as a means of ameliorating men's condition. Mm. So we've had the state come in to control education, we've had the state come in to control welfare, we've had the state doing this, we have the state doing that. So what you what you stand for is to them would seem uh, revolutionary or how do they look at what you're well <coughs> I think to some extent American, the American version of Christianity is often perceived in Australia to be a little over the top, we would probably say. And that would come down very much in this uh, economic area. The, the real basis of free market economy, which is the ability to own and possess property, we don't really have. Uh, land in Australia belongs to the Crown. We have this facade of ownership but it really doesn't ex exist. Yes. And that is historically connected to our founding, of course, being a, uh, you know, effectively a penal, you know, uh, colony for the, um, or penal colony for the, for the English after you guys tossed them out. <laughs> this matter of land ownership, land belongs to the crown. Explain specifically what that means. Well, effectively, it means that the, the, the land ultimately is owned by the Crown. And therefore, although they give you a title to ownership, the Crown can take back the land any time it likes. It's really eminent domain. It's really eminent domain. Now, it's not stated in those terms. You can get a, a certificate of title of the land. But when you ask the lawyers, they will tell you pretty clearly that, that that's the way it exists. In Canberra, which is our national capital, you can't purchase the land at all. All you get is a 99-year lease on your property or something like that. And that would be more clearly demonstrate the real nature of, of what goes on there. Is there a reason for that? Uh, just historically, Russia, I think that's the way it's always been and no one's ever changed it. In your estimation, if a real Christian reformation is to come to Australia, what are some things they're going to have to happen and what are the chief areas that have to change? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, temptation in that is to pick your pet topics and and uh, say this is where I think it happens. I, I think if we went through a number of areas such as uh, the home, then it clearly need, means a reformation in the, in the home, which uh, for me would be restoration of family worship the restoration of the headship of the man into the family. And, and the I problem think with feminism and... Oh, yes. Sorry, big yeah. problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, the Christian home, uh, the, the homeschooling movement, I think, is part and parcel of that reformation that is taking place. When I moved to Queensland about three years ago uh, to help uh, one of the Christian curriculum, uh, curriculum supplies in Australia, one of my first activities was to visit with the state uh, deputy director general of education, and his words to me at the time were that uh, homeschooling was the fastest growing aspect of education in the Western world. Not just Queensland, not just Australia, but in the Western world. And he was determined that the Queensland Education Department would have a significant portion of that market within the continent. Uh, and that's historically because uh, Queensland is such a huge state that they have uh, quite a lot of what we formally call distance education, students learning at home uh, through... Uh, government correspondence type schools. So they had the practical expertise to help run remote education. Now I'm not sure how far they have progressed in obtaining portions of the market in other states, but they were certainly aiming to do that. Where do you think the chief influence of feminism came from in Australia? Um, not sure I know the, uh, the answer to that one, Douglas. I mean, did, was this culturally absorbed from the United States or from England? Or um, don't think I could answer that. Um, traditionally, we tend to absorb a fair bit from from the United States and also England, uh, perhaps more so the you know, the US. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's where the the strong influence came from, where uh, we produced a very famous uh, feminist. Um, in the 60s, uh, Germaine Greer, who wrote a book, I think it was called The Female Eunuch, which was at the time a very uh, popular book on the feminisation uh, scene. She has since somewhat backtracked from some of those statements she made and is less uh, feminist than what she would have been uh, 30 years ago. In what way is Australia influenced by the United States? Through what means? Is it education, entertainment, media? Media primarily, um, and then I think there are increasingly a lot of business contacts across the Pacific. Uh, America still produces fantastic marketing, and many of the the, um, the business concepts, especially in the franchise area, have made their way to to Australia. We have the McDonald's stores, the Kentucky Fried Chicken, the, the Pizza Huts, the Sizzler store, uh, Burger King's over there with a different name, but. Um, so quite a few of those uh, chains have made their way uh, to America and therefore there's the transference of you know, American business practices. Do American you know, movies, I noticed even in Africa when we were in Zambia, American movies contribute to cultural decadence there. Is that a big factor, would you say? Oh, I would think so, yeah. I mean, we don't, have a, we don't really have a film industry of our own, so the film industry is very much um, uh, an imported job. So they import, the, for instance, television programming? Yeah. Most of the t TV programs are, are imported. Do you have state TV, basically, or do you have a lot of independent? No, we only have basically uh, four channels in most capital cities, mm. five now with, uh, with ethnic um, uh, or TV coding for different nationalities. But probably satellite is coming in, cable and satellite, or...? Well, cable's starting to come in, so we're starting, but that's still early days, and most of them are losing money at it uh, quite rapidly. 
so they haven't even got themselves to a break-even point. What new ethnic groups are becoming prominent in Australia? <laughs> well, we've absorbed quite a few of the uh, the Vietnamese after the the end of the war because of our involvement in, in Vietnam. Uh, we have a growing um, uh, Middle East population, and therefore we are seeing the rise of Islam within the nation as well. Um, I think the last figure I heard was something like 250,000 uh, Muslims in the country, which for a population of uh, a fifteenth, you know, the size of this continent would put it at fifteen times quarter of a million. Is I guess nearly what, four million people, so four, four million Muslims. I'm not sure that you'd have that many here, would you? There's around five million, I think. <coughs> was the last yeah, number I heard in the United five States. Five million in yeah. the United States. Okay. So then, proportionately, we're not that far different. Is there a net increase or decrease in population in Australia? What's the immigration situation going and coming? Uh, the immigration is, is not large. The government controls that fairly well. And in the economic climate, uh, the foreigners are often seen as the cause of, of the economic problems. They're, they're taking jobs from, from Australians, even though uh, most of the immigration laws only provide access, access for people who have particular skills, and they're usually the ones we don't have within the nation. Um, in terms of birth rate within the country, uh, I think we're running at about 2.1 or 1.9, somewhere around that, and we need about 2.2 for replacement. So any growth that we're having is essentially coming out of the you know, immigration policies of the country. Speaking of birth rates, what's the abortion uh, issue like there, and what are the any laws against any abortion, against abortion throughout the three trimesters or what? Um, we have basic abortion laws there, but they aren't um, they aren't uh, uh, enforced. So abortion is one of those issues that um, should preoccupy people's attention more, but doesn't. Again, even within the Christian community, a large portion of that would accept uh, a woman's right to determine, you know, what happens within her own body. Hmm. Is the conservative church like the one basically here very anti-theological and anti-intellectual? Basically, you know, godly goose pimples, uh, good feely religion. Is that basically a, a, an accurate assessment of conservatives? And yeah, that would also be, um, I think, to some extent, a cultural issue as well. I'd, my own feeling would be that, or my own understanding would be that Australia generally is not an overly intellectual type nation. We're more pragmatic. We're more interested in if it works than in ideas. And I think that causes a you know problem for us in many areas. So we don't have the kind of analysis within the country, for example, that you know Dr. Rush Dooney or yourself are doing. Or even if we move away from the reconstruction movement and say, you know, you have some very conservative type, you know, political organizations um, doing economic analysis, political analysis, etc. To go back to your question, Andrew, that you asked on the other side of the tape, which is to do with um, you know, the areas that need reform. I mentioned the family. We can certainly move into the church in, in our country and say that I think we need to seriously rethink what's going on within our evangelical churches and especially our reformed churches. By and large, <coughs> we are declining in number. And that's really because we have no evangelistic program 
Is that, that conservative is, churches or all churches? I'm talking now specifically about the Reformed mm-hmm. churches, which would tend to be uh, conservative by number, although that obviously can be divided between somewhat liberal and, and more conservative. But by and large, the Reformed churches are not successful at um, evangelism. While I'm cautious about using the sort of word successful with evangelism, I think there is a place that unless we grow, we decline. Mm -hmm. And we are certainly declining both in numbers and influence. I think there are a number of reasons for that. And I think, you know, the type of men we're attracting into the ministry are not the type who are good at going out, knocking on doors, meeting strange people. They're more pastoral type, etc. and things like that. But that's an area that, that, uh, that, that clearly needs to be addressed. Our Christian schools, which are often attached to the churches, uh, again, while we say we have Christian schools, I think we have a long way to go in the development of a Christian curriculum. Um, Most of the specifically Christian curriculum that came into Australia in the last uh, 20 to 30 years would be American in origin, and uh, there would be a very selective process in taking portions of it and leaving portions of it out. You know, for example, the, the more conservative economic materials that often come attached with the school curriculum out of or curricula out of America would be uh, omitted from from the traditional classrooms. Why would why would Australia want to absorb uh, curriculum from the United States? Why not either generate its own or recognize the fact that America's educational system is uh, public education system is failing and, and going in a different direction? Well, I think, as a generalization, the soci- socialism tends to, to inhibit entrepreneurship, which is what you need to develop something new. So I don't see in our country the same kind of entrepreneurial get up and, you know, create something new that uh, that I would find in this country. You're talking about the church. Now can we move on or continue talking about the church and then maybe outward from the church what's needed for reformation? Well, if we go out from there into the business, clearly the business uh, area is, is one enormous potential uh, for reform and I would think that that remains true here as, as well as my own country. <laughs> Uh, both in terms of, uh, you know, products that are being, you know, brought into the market. We have the same kind of pornography heading into the country that, that's produced here to be on, on the one extreme. Um, but then there's the the simple fact of human relationships that go on so much in a business. How do we create an environment for man to fulfil the gifts that God's given him in a way that becomes uh, uh, meaningful for the person without the... the in, uh, rather difficult, you know, politics that often go on within a business organisation, and even the, the many Christian organisations I know of are, are beset with the same kind of problems. But again, I think that's the area of opportunity for us to develop specific Christian answers to these uh, to these areas. What does it mean to have Christian management? How would the, how would we work that out in practice? Some of the more conservative Australians that I've met have come from the far west. Is that just an accident or is there a difference there? Uh, there would be a difference uh, there, Rush, the, uh, you know, 2,000 miles of separation 
and uh, virtually nothing in between means that the people over there tend to tend to be less influenced by what happens in the on the east coast. But in terms of population, uh, the whole of Western Australia has about 1.2 million, something like that, one and a quarter million. So it's statistically not that significant in terms of Australia generally. Which is why the people in the West actually would like to secede and start their own nation. But uh, what about politically? Are there is the political situ- situation there somewhat analogous to the U.S., where you have a sort of a moderately conservative party, and then you have a multi-party system? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, is there any Christian influence in politics? Or well, we have Christians in in politics, but I don't think we have Christian politicians. Christian right? politicians who could who would really stand up and say these are some of you know, the issues. Uh, the the obvious areas abortion would be criticised from from some quarters. We recently had the Northern Territory, which is still under federal government control to some extent, passed a law legalising um, euthanasia. And there were movements in the federal parliament to pass a law, uh, which they did, which uh, prohibited that uh, that law remaining in force. So there are odd samples of it. But if we took the generality of what the politicians do, which is down to economics, uh, we really don't have um, a Christian view we are within the nation. Is there a recognition among the Christians for a need for this, or is there just sort of an apathetic spirit? I think by and large, because we are, our, our political system is um, much more influenced by the party structures. Uh, we, I don't see in our nation the same independence amongst politicians, say within our Liberal Party, that I would see here amongst, uh, say, the Republicans. And um, certainly, as uh, one state politician said to me some 20 years ago, when I asked him, you know, why he didn't vote against certain issues, his his response was, Ian, I can only cross the floor so many times. So he would lose party endorsement, which would be necessary to stand on the party party ticket. Now, what we are seeing is the rise of more independents, mm-hmm. independent candidates, but by and large, they're still not statistically significant to make a difference. In my own state, we have one independent who's a woman and a fine Christian lady, good supporter of Christian schools and stuff, things like that, who holds the balance of power between the two parties. Hmm. So whichever way she votes is the way that the you know that the legislation goes. In New South Wales, they had um, in the upper house they had Fred, Reverend Fred Nile and his wife, who similarly held a balance of power there and could make a difference between uh, uh, you know some of the issues. And in some cases, they have been able to stop you know uh, some bad legislation going through, or at least you know water it down to to, to a more tolerable level. What's the situation with inheritance of property from father to son or intergenerational? Uh, we were we did have inheritance taxes that at, at various levels. Most of those have been um, uh, abolished, and whether they remain so, I guess only the future will hold. But right at the moment, the 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 inheritance laws are very generous for us. 
providing we have a generous inheritance, I guess. Can we talk about you and your ministry? I know you've told me, Ian, that for years you've <coughs> you've uh, published a newsletter. What are some other things that you and your uh, ministry are, are accomplishing or trying to accomplish there in Australia? Well, we haven't done done really much more than that, Andrew. Our our real ministry has been more a, a, a vehicle for bringing materials in from America, uh, such as the calcium materials which we distribute, and um, and things like that. We've also uh, taken to Australia a whole series of Reconstructionist men to lecture across country and in various institutions, and I think that's been an important factor. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you know our big problem there is that we have no full-time staff at all, and um, so anything that gets done is done on a part-time basis. And since I'm pretty well driving, whatever happens, if I get preoccupied in business or something like that, which I tend to do from time to time, not a real lot happens. Uh, as I said, we just had a conference there in the past week with uh, Brian Abshire, and uh, that was really as the result of encouragement from other folk, you know, subscribers who were. Feeling a little neglected over the over the time because we previous concert uh, conference was five years ago when we bought you know Russia out for our tenth anniversary. So, in your estimation, what are some practical things that Christians can do, whether here or in Australia, to put into uh, in, into practice the ideas that Calcedon is disseminating? Well, it's a little hard for me to, to, to talk about this nation here in, in the United States, but certainly in Australia, I think we still have got to get our, our foot on the first rung of the ladder, which is really having people being prepared to listen to us. And I don't think that comes from shouting our message louder. I think that comes from building the necessary relationships in such a way that people will give us the time of day to maybe hear what we want to say. In other words, deserve to be listened to in the first yeah. place. Mm-hmm. I also think that, that there's a pragmatic side of that in that in order to move people from where they are to where you want them to be, you have to you have to find out what are some of the, the issues that they're prepared to listen to. And maybe, for example, our the free market economic issue isn't the one that right. we should be concentrating on. We need to find out what the strategic issues are, you're yes. saying. Yeah. And I think maybe for us that uh, that may even come down to, to simple things like how do we have the existing evangelical or reformed church, which, which some of us have uh, become part of in the reformed community, how do we influence that so that it can become um, a growing force? And that may be just you know, practical little steps like helping with evangelism to find out ways to uh, to do that or how to train the pastors a little better um, perhaps to teach um, a more comprehensive message from the Bible you know to the people in the in the pew so you support the technique of working within existing structures for the most part or whenever possible well about 10 years ago I am a little longer in the mid 80s I struggled with the question of um, of uh, Denomination hopping, which I'd done a little of, uh, mainly as I was, you know, moving in into different geographical locations, <coughs> and uh, all of us would like to be in a church that the we feel, church. yeah, the perfect <laughs> church, and we don't believe that we'll ruin it when we get there. 
but I realized something that, uh, you know, I can walk out of this denomination and go to that denomination, but it's very hard to do it to my own family, or it's very hard to do it to my own nation. I mean, which nation would you go to today mm -hmm. if you wanted a Christian nation? Um, you walk out of Australia, America's probably not much better. Um, maybe Zambia's looking good for a for hundred years' time, but right now, you, you, you know, we're not going to pack up our goods and go to that. So I realized that... Um, at the end of the day, to be a reconstructionist, you have to stay there and learn how to reconstruct the place that you're in. And that takes time. So you'd really counsel patience? I'd counsel patience and, um, and uh, a lot of it. One of the things I appreciated the fact is that I didn't... I'd, it took me maybe three to five years to work through the issues that moved me from where I was to to basically what I'd believe as a as a as a Calvinist, and uh, I came from a non-Calvinistic background, and many of the people we're talking to, even within traditional reform circles, uh, probably don't understand Calvin's Institutes uh, any better than the non-Calvinists. So we have a terrific gap between where they are and where we'd like them to be, and they're not going to shift overnight. None of us have. The political scene in Australia is uh, a rather strange one because of its compulsory voting law and the strange way of counting votes. Is there any likelihood of that? Explain it, and uh, is there any likelihood of change? Um to explain our not only our compulsory system but our preferential system of voting is is uh, is um, a little difficult to do in uh, one or two minutes, but I'll try in thirty seconds instead. Take take your time, <coughs> because I think it's important that you do, since I have heard references in the media here to that as a desirable system for the United States. So I think people should know about it. Well, first of all, we have uh, compulsory um, voting. I, I hesitated before, before I said the word voting because in actual fact, it's only compulsory to turn up and have your name marked off the roll. You can actually pick up the ballot paper and not put a mark on it and everything will be fine. So the compulsory, you know, like school attendance laws, you know, you've got to attend the, the, the polling booth on, on, the, uh, on election day. If you vote, though, and they've ameliorated this to some extent now, it was uh, necessary to mark in order of preference all names on the ballot paper. And when the counting uh, takes place, they then allocate the votes in terms of the preferences that you mark on your ballot paper. So if I have five candidates, I mark them one, two, three, four, five. So my first preference has got number one. However, if he has the lowest number of votes in the electorate, they will then take my voting paper and say, your first preference now becomes person number two. Mm. And so they have a process of elimination of those five names until only two remain. And then they have a runoff between the two? No, no, no. 
when the two remain, whoever's got the most number of, oh, of, those of votes, two. okay, oh, complicated will be the computation. Yeah. That's right. Interestingly enough, I've just spent uh, the last three months writing software for the Electoral Commission in Queensland that would um, both record and, and do some of these computations. But effectively, we are a two-party preferred system and we will eliminate uh, everybody's... or not uh, eliminate, we transfer the vote down to the next person until everyone except the two people are eliminated. Hmm. Now it may not be the parties. At the end of the day, it may be an independent that gets the get, that gets the numbers. But uh, so it makes counting quite quite complicated. Is that just on the federal or national level, or all levels? All levels, yeah, federal and state. Hmm. Um, your system here of uh, non-compulsory voting, of course, is a is a entirely different. Um, when uh, you say they want to change Russia, is it compulsory voting they want to bring in, or is it the preferential system? I've heard references to both. If it were compulsory voting, a very large number of people uh, who are uh, welfare people, drifters, and the like, would vote. And they would vote for whoever offers them the most. Mm. So it would have a shattering effect on the entire structure of this country. Well, I guess the real question here would be, under your system of non-compulsory voting, who does the voting? Yes. And I guess some of the poorer classes tend not to turn out. Exactly. That would be a guess. That's right. Yeah. Just like the, uh, the poor... You know, the poorer your politicians, the poorer your government. Well, the poorer your voters, the poorer the the result yeah. on election day. And there, and and their liberals are constantly upset that conservatives have a better turnout at polls. People who really care uh, have have a better turnout. So their idea is, we get more people out, things will go our way a little more easily. Yes, yeah, so that's an impetus to a change. And uh, one of the things that uh, has happened in Australia is that a basically conservative country moved rapidly to the left when it adopted this type of uh, voting because Australia was a rather conservative, old-fashioned country before. I think it's conservatism that has to be seen in its historical context of, you know, British conservatism uh, as well. And um, I'm not uh, an historian of my own nation or elsewhere or a good enough historian to be able to comment uh, too deeply, but I would think that are the origins of our, of our country, where we effectively from, from the beginning had a centralised system of control. Mm. It was the British appointed governors who dictated what went on, you know, within the colonies. And I think combine that with the the Christian concepts that came out of Britain in the 18th and 19th century of turning to the state, you know, the compulsory education movement, uh, the movement to welfare, 
the whole movement to uh, to a broader franchise uh, again were issues that were argued by non-Christians and they turned to the state to drive their agenda through and the Christians didn't really have a response for that because too often our church was still uh, a national church as a la Great Britain and many of the issues for example I spoke the other day on, on education in Australia and was quoting uh, some of the people who saw last century that the, the, that the rise of state education would, uh, would, would make it very difficult for the, for the Christian gospel in the country, and it has. But many of these arguments were in the framework of that they didn't like the government favouring the Anglicans and so the Presbyterians were trying to get their, to get their share of the government funding and the Catholics were trying to get their share. So it was more an inter, interdenominational yeah. you know, grab for, for government funding than it yeah. was a real issue of let's keep the government right out of it completely. Yeah. Hmm. What do you see happening in Australia? Are there any favourable signs of a change? I think um, the Christian school movement rush is the uh, obvious sign that's going on there. Um, I think it's too early for us yet to be to see what kind of results it's going to to bring. But if uh, this country is any indication where you've had it uh, for a longer period of time, then I think out of that we will start to see a different character in the young men and women that we produce out of the Christian school movement. And I think that's our hope. Certainly your family is evidence of that. And uh, Matthew is remarkable, your oldest. He's a sign of a very different uh, coming uh, social order. Well, he's uh, the encouraging thing is, Rush, that he's not the only one there. There are yeah, you know, maybe good. a handful of them that are uh, uh, young men still in their teens. Uh, they're reading your books, they're reading books by other good conservative Christian scholars. Um, they're even reading Calvin's, you know, commentaries and things like that. And these are, you know, young men, as I say, still in their teens who are reading material, for example, that I never knew existed until I was in my 30s. And I think wow. we we're going to produce, you know, a, a number of superior, you know, men for the future. Earlier this year, we, well, just a couple of months ago, we had... Uh, from Australia, a friend of yours, Nicholas Aroni, a graduate student, brilliant. Mm. His thinking is a tremendous portent of the future for Christians the world over. And uh, it's exciting to see men like that coming forth, mm. even in a, an otherwise dark uh, scene. Well, we have some good men there, and as I say, they've 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 been working for the last twenty or thirty years in uh, in some 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 key areas, but we're not large in number. That's probably proportional to the influence of conservative Christianity with the nation. So well, I still see that evangelism has to be one of the keys to our. Well, you've had an important part in uh, beginning the change there because uh, the work you carried on all the speakers you brought in, the seminars you've held, and uh, tomorrow 
Brian Abishire will complete his uh, tour there that you set up and return home. So hopefully in a couple of months we will have Brian on an easy chair to ask him about his general impressions. Well, we've certainly enjoyed having uh, Brian in the country and um, you know, apart from the fact he talks with a funny accent for some of us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he uh, he was certainly well received, and he uh, he was really able to communicate, I think, uh, a critical message in the nation to encourage Christians there to think in a much more comprehensive manner about the faith, and um, certainly encourage us and challenge us to uh, to a wider. Uh, Speaking Christian of faith. Brian's funny accent, he's an American. Uh, Bob tells a story about what a bison is in the U.S. and in Australia. In the U.S., it's what is known as the western buffalo. In Australia, a bison is something you wash your face in. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob's always seemed to have a problem with his language, so um, you know, we'll forgive him. <laughs> well, our time is about up. Does anyone have a last question they'd like to ask? If not, Brian, again, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Ian. Uh, Ian, excuse me. <laughs> and we hope your trip here will be a successful and a blessed one and that you return home greatly encouraged in the prospects for your work there. And we hope it won't be too long before you come back again. Thank you again, and thank you for your hospitality for my time here. It's uh, always appreciated. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. <laughs>